0: Welcome back to Steph's Business Bookshelf and this episode about the book Smarter, Faster, Better by Charles Duick. Keep listening to find out what poker players, the army and Disney have in common. You're listening to Steph's Business Bookshelf, doing the reading so you don't have to. Welcome back. I'm back under my pillowcase this morning to record this little episode for you and big huge thank you in fact to those of you who've signed up to the bookmark and received the first edition of that newsletter last week i had some really lovely comments from people so thank you thank you for signing up and allowing a little space in your inbox for that every fortnight where i share some of the books some verdicts on some of the books i've been reading some reviews some new things coming out and a couple of other fun things as well like some interviews and some podcast recommendations too If you now have a suitable amount of FOMO and did not receive your copy of the bookmark last week, that is all okay. I will forgive you. You can sign up using the link that is right at the top of the show notes for this episode to make it super easy for you or head over to the Steph's Business Bookshelf website, stephsbusinessbookshelf.com to sign up there. Okay, so back into a productivity book this week, which is cool because I've not done a productivity book for a little while now. I, as you may know, I do love a productivity book, anything about habits or working better or smarter or getting into deep work and all of these different things. So I was pretty excited to read this book, especially because he's kind of known, or Charles Duhigg, the author is kind of known as the granddaddy of habits based because of his book, The Power of Habit, which BJ Fogg and James Clear certainly credit a lot with some of the work that they have also done. So I'll share a little bit more about what I've thought about this book as we go through, but if you haven't heard about it or the author, I will share a little bit more right now. So a bit about the book. From the author of New York Times best-selling phenomenon, The Power of Habit, comes a fascinating new book that explores the science of productivity and why in today's world managing how you think rather than what you think can transform your life. A young woman drops out of a PhD program and starts playing poker. A group of data scientists at Google embark on a four-year study of how the best teams function, a Marine Corps general faced with low morale among recruits reimagines boot camp and the filmmakers behind Disney's Frozen are nearly out of time and on the brink of catastrophe. What do these people have in common? They know that productivity relies on making certain choices, the way we frame our daily decisions, the big ambitions we embrace and the easy goals we ignore, the cultures we establish as leaders to drive innovation, the way we interact with data, these are the things that separate the merely busy from the genuinely productive. Drawing on the latest findings in neuroscience, psychology, and behavioral economics, as well as the experiences of CEOs, educational reformers, four-star generals, FBI agents, airplane pilots, and Broadway songwriters, this painstakingly researched book explains that the most productive people, companies, and organizations don't merely act differently. They view the world and their choices in profoundly different ways. A little bit about the author. Charles Duhigg is a reporter for the New York Times. He's also the author of The Power of Habit, about the science of habit formation, as well as smarter, faster, better. He's worked for the Times since, since 2006, In 2013, he was part of a team that won the Pulitzer Prize for a series about Apple named the the Eye Economy." Before that, he contributed to the New York Times series about the 2008 financial crisis, how companies take advantage of the elderly and national violations of the Safe Drinking Water Act. He's a native of New Mexico. He studied history at Yale and received an MBA from Harvard Business School. He now lives in Brooklyn with his wife and two children. And before becoming a journalist, he was a bike messenger in San Francisco for one terrifying day. Now, because I was aware of his work around habits, I actually picked up this book completely, almost by mistake, thinking it was his book about habits. And then, quite quickly, obviously, realised that it wasn't. And I thought, oh well, I'm sure it's good because he's the he's the habit guy. So it was. I will admit, I went into it th- expecting it to be something different, and then it wasn't but that's okay the thing I noticed about it was the the journalism bent and you after reading a lot of different business books non-fiction books now you start to see or be able to tell which books are written by scientists which books are written by academics which books are written by journalists which books are written by kind of subject matter experts or leaders that have had an experience and this one is definitely a journalism book Uh, as it mentioned in the blurb there it's so well researched the stories come from all over the place so you're not going to get just some of the there's a couple of stories you'll be familiar with like the google project aristotle but a lot of the stories in here are ones that you won't be familiar with which i did enjoy so on that note let's get into the three big ideas i took from the book smarter faster better by charles doing big idea number one doing more with less and this book was actually inspired by Charles not being able to get hold of Atul Gawande, who is the author of the Checklist Manifesto, which I talked about really early on in the podcast. It was kind of episode maybe three or four, I think. It's a book I really enjoyed, and he was trying to get hold of, of Atul to, to, to catch up with him and, and pick his brains on something, and realised that the reason he couldn't get hold of him was because Atul was. Just having a nice time kind of hanging with his kids going to Disneyland or something I think or going camping or something and he Charles was like hang on I've not taken a break in in nine months I'm really overworked I'm burnt out how is this guy who's super important really busy in you know kind of inverted commas there or who you would imagine is being really busy how has he got all this leisure time? So this is what sparked his, his idea to, to, to start this book or to write about productivity and about this fundamental principle of doing more with less. It's about productivity at an individual and at a collective level and there's plenty of examples of both. But what we need to be able to do to in order to bring this to life is recognize that it's the choices that fuel productivity. And succeeding at what you do, whatever you choose that to be, and you know whatever part of your life you choose that to be, it's about doing that with less effort. So there's eight chapters in the book that cover all of the different elements of the thinking, the choices, the decisions that need to be made in order to do more with less. less, And that includes motivation, teams or working effectively in teams, focus, goal setting, managing others, decision making, innovation and absorbing data. And in each of those eight chapters, there's stories, anecdotes, some studies that back up how those particular behaviors or those particular decisions or those particular mindsets will help you do more with less. But fundamentally, and and I know it was a little while ago, actually, I shared a photo of this book on on Instagram and someone kind of took a bit of offense, it's a bit of a strong word, but someone jumped in on a comment and was like, oh, I'm sick of these books telling us that we need to be more, we need to be doing, you know, we need to be smarter, we need to be faster, we need to be better. It's just so, so vulgar and they were quite offended by this but actually when you look at the book like yes it is about smarter faster being smarter faster better of course that's the title of the book but actually it's about it's not about just plowing more hours in or being like more hustle and all of this kind of more aggressive approach to things it is about having that leisure time recouping the good parts of all the different things in your life so that you can enjoy them and not just flog yourself to death and and burn yourself out so that's big idea number one which is pretty important i think about doing more with less Big idea number two, which flows throughout the book, it is embrace control, relinquish certainty. There's some studies near the beginning of the book that show that those who have a stronger ability to take control of their lives, live longer, they're happier, they're more confident, they're more resilient, and that control is a biological imperative of us as humans. We want some level of control. And the best way to exert control and to maintain some control is by making decisions or taking actions. And that might include small acts of defiance. There was a great story in the book about some nursing home residents who kept moving all their furniture around. And the the kind of owners or the management of the, the nursing home kind of called them all together and said, look, you know, if you need help, if you want us to, we can redecorate, if you're not happy with things, like what do you need? And they were like, no, no, we're fine, like leave it, leave it with us. And they were literally crowbarring wardrobes and stuff off the wall, these, these defiant old people, because it gave them a sense of control. They had the room as they wanted it. They were the ones in charge of deciding what went where. They were the ones in charge of doing it, and they were helping each other to do this as well. But what was really interesting is those particular old people, were more social, they ate more, they got sick less, they were just much happier in this nursing home because they still had this sense of control and this sense of agency over their existence, destiny, etc., even though they were living somewhere which was, you know, assisted living. Now the good news is that control and being able to take control can be learnt. This is all about coming back to this internal or external locust of control. And you can you can breed that in children through feedback that you're giving them and even you know adults as well so it's the difference between giving someone feedback to say you're good at this versus you worked hard at this and they've done various studies on kids particularly with maths problems that shows by giving them an easier test at first and giving half the kids feedback to say oh you're really good at maths aren't you well done when they score a high score but the other half of the kids they gave feedback to say you worked really hard well done and then when you give them harder problems, the ones that have previously been given the feedback that they worked hard to try and solve the problems actually perform better and are more resilient when they're faced with harder challenges. And with a, with an adult population, this was trained into Army cadets in the US through their boot camp training because they really wanted or they, they need to be able to take control of the situation to make fast decisions and, and take action when it matters most. So they start building that in training in the boot camp by not giving instructions for certain tasks and letting them figure it out themselves. And there was a quite an amusing story in the book about this boot camp group who were a bit younger, hadn't maybe had some of the life experience, who had to clean up the kitchen or the mess after, after one of the meals. And they just had no idea what to do. It took them three and a half hours. They made all these different mistakes, but the feedback they got... Uh, was around the quality of their decision making and the feedback that each of them got was personalized and it was based on something that that person maybe isn't naturally good at or maybe hasn't shown before. So for example the strongest guy wouldn't have got feedback about how strong he was and how he lifted that really heavy thing. He would get feedback about the fact he helped someone else do something and the quietest guy who doesn't normally take control of a situation would be given feedback about how he stepped up and led and decided where the catch-up went for example. Now, the other thing that's important about t- taking control and, and embracing some control is knowing your odds. The lesson that's taken from poker, and there some poker players talked to in the book, is that the losers are always after certainty. If you're after certainty in your decisions, you will never make a decision or you'll never make a good decision. So you need to know your odds. And again, this can be trained. There is a need to be able to think probabilistically. Now, that took me three attempts. I'm not going to lie to say that word. I need to be able to think of the future as numerous possibilities and hold those numerous possibilities of outcomes in your mind to be able to move forward in the absence of uncertainty but while still maintaining control. Now this is something that people sometimes really struggle with is being able to they get an idea of what the future looks like and then when that doesn't turn out things fall apart or they have an idea of what something has to look like in their future and can't entertain any other potential options. But this is where knowing your odds, embracing control, so think about what you can control, and relinquishing your need for too much certainty will serve you well. So that's big idea number two, embrace control, relinquish certainty, but know that both of those skills can be taught. Big idea number three is building a productive culture. Now big idea number two is slightly more from an individual perspective. Number three, this one's a little bit more about the teams. There's various stories throughout the book, from the chapters on teams, from the chapters on leading others, from the chapters on trust. The one that stuck out the most was this story about the the General Motors Fremont plant in California. Around the 1980s, it was a mess. Here's some examples of some of the things. A little bit of adult content here, just to warn you. As the cars went along the assembly line, the workers would fill the boots with ice cubes in bags in the car boots. And they would fill that with drinks that would move along the conveyors. So they'd all be drinking on the job. There was empty whiskey bottles put into the door frames. which would then rattle when someone bought the car and would have to then have the car door taken apart to fix. They would actually have sex workers turn up in, in an RV who would turn up at the mandated break times at the car park and would entertain some of the, the, the workers from the, from the factory. There was a lot of drugs. The car parts were used as bongs and the line didn't stop and this was the important thing the line didn't stop some guy actually had a heart attack fell into the into the pit and they couldn't pull him out until it got to the end of the line because the line wasn't allowed to stop if they ever stopped the line they knew they would be in huge trouble so even when a guy had a heart attack and fell into the line they had to wait till he got the end of the line until they pulled him out and got him the help he needed so this meant that the cars got to the end of the line with all sorts of faults on them because if something went a bit wrong. They, they wouldn't stop the line to fix it, they'd have to just they'd put a, a crayon mark or a sticky note on the thing to say that there was a problem, but then when the car got to the end of the line with all these problems, it would have to basically be re-taken apart and then put back together again and start all over again. And there was clearly just no trust, the man, it was very much an us and them culture between management and the, the factory workers and people just turned up to get paid basically. But then Toyota arrived and they went into a joint deal with the factory and in, as part of the interviews there was a deal with the unions that 80% of the workers had to from the, from the factory had to stay on when Toyota took over so they re-interviewed for those roles. They asked people what they disliked about the work and they heard the ideas, they heard the stories that people had all these ideas about how to make things better but they were, they were just ignored. People didn't, management didn't care. So what they did was they took some of the the team to Japan, about 20 of them to Japan, and they were just blown away by the quality over speed approach that the Japanese took, the Toyota team took, to to building cars. If something went wrong, they would stop the line, they would be fixed, the managers would come over, they would get involved, they'd help, they'd find the right parts, they would help the person fix it, and then the cord would be pulled again and the line would move on. And they saw this happening multiple times a day, no one got in trouble, The cars were a much better quality and things things just worked smoother. And it was a much obviously nicer working environment. So Toyota put this in place in California at the Fremont plant. But as you can imagine, when it was implemented, it didn't quite work because the Fremont workers were so used to the culture of before, they didn't trust that it wouldn't backfire and they wouldn't be punished if they pulled the cord if something went wrong. It took a Toyota visitor after a few months coming over and seeing that these problems weren't fixed to actually help someone pull the cord and prove that this was, this was how things were done and build the trust in action, not with what was just written in their new contracts or, or told to them. Of course, there could have been unintended consequences. If they'd kept pulling the cord, the factory could have been ruined in terms of from the financial impact of, of stopping the line for a period of time. But it worked because you empowered rather than punished the employees. And it put it back in their hands and it gave them the chance to take quality and have pride in their work rather than just doing things for the sake of doing things almost. There was another just a quick example in the book about bag checks from a a company who had problems with thefts and how actually that the unintended consequence of that. So, yes, they checked everyone's bags on their way in and out, but the unintended consequence is that productivity completely dropped because people would leave earlier and earlier to try and get through the bag check line and get home at a decent time because it took so long. So the fundamental part of building a productive culture is building trust and having and pushing things down to the lowest level of decision making that is possible. This is where the magic will happen and you will start to see some of those new and different ways of doing things emerge. So that's big idea number three, building a productive culture. Quick recap on those three big ideas. Number one, do more with less. Number two, embrace control, relinquish certainty. And number three, build a productive culture. And when I read this book, I enjoyed it, but I didn't love it, if I'm honest, because it was lots of stories. It reminded me a little bit, in in hindsight, it reminds me a bit of Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers. I really enjoyed it. There was really interesting stories. There was heaps of different examples that I hadn't heard of before, or maybe hadn't heard of in the depth that Charles goes into before. But I went away just thinking, oh yeah, that was interesting, rather than, oh, there's loads of stuff here that I can apply. Like, yes, of course, there is. there was potentially some new ideas, some tweaks on things, but, but if you've read much about productivity before, it's all probably going to be stuff you're pretty familiar with, but just with some new examples and stories. So I'd recommend it as an interesting read if you, if you want some different stories to back up some of the things that you're doing or working on from a productivity perspective. There's probably some new things in here you can use. But if you're looking for something that's going to help you be more productive, I'm not sure this is my go-to book, if I'm honest. I'd probably still be going to a Cal Newport book for pure kind of productivity hints and tips and stuff that you can apply there and then so there we go that's it smarter faster better by charles duig a couple of other books i mentioned in this episode so the carol newport books so good they can't ignore you i'll put a link to that in the show notes along with atul gawande's checklist manifesto i would also put a link to that in the show notes for you if you haven't listened to those you can go back and listen to them And of course, don't forget to sign up for the bookmark newsletter. The next one will be going out next week. But otherwise, until next time, happy reading.